In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I read a story to my children this week before they went to bed. Um, we do that when we're out of duct tape so that we can't bind them and drag them to the bedroom. <clears throat> so when all else fails, offer to read. So we read them a story from the Brothers Grimm. And uh, it's the story of the poor man and the rich man. Raise your hand if you've ever read The Poor Man and the Rich Man by the Brothers Grimm. Okay, several of you. Awesome. A lot more than the first service. So this is the intellectuals here. Great. All right. <clears throat> How it goes like this. It's a short story. It imagines the Lord walking, uh, traveling in a, um, in, a, uh, in a country, and uh, it's nearing dusk, and the Lord is in need of lodging. And so he sees this rather large home um, on one side of the road, and so he thinks to himself, surely they could accommodate me. So he goes up, and he knocks on the door. And he asks if he might stay the night there. And the owner of the home says, you know, I've got, you know, herbs drying in some room. And, uh, you know, the other rooms are kind of being used for other purposes. And, you know, if I, if I let you stay here, that kind of sets a precedent that I don't think I'll be able to sustain until later. So I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. And the Lord says, okay. Uh, he notices across the way, though, there's a little hut and uh, he begins to walk up the road thinking to himself that surely that place can't accommodate them. But the, but the owner of that more austere place uh, notices him walking up the road and says, Good sir, it's gathering dark. You need to find a place to stay. You can't go any further. You don't know what sort of brigands, there's a word for you, brigands are out there. Please come stay with us. And the Lord says, Surely you can't. And he goes, No, no, I insist. So they invite the Lord into their home. Uh, they sit him at their table. It's a, a man and woman of an older age who are as kind as they might be and yet have very meager resources at their disposal. And they, they feed him well. And then as they consume their dinner, they say, uh, Sir, let us make a straw mat for ourselves. We'd like you to sleep in our bed. And the Lord says, I wouldn't think of it. Please let me stay in your other room. And they say, No, we insist. And so this older man and woman make a straw mat for themselves, allow the Lord to sleep in their bed. Um, he sleeps well. He awakes in the morning. They come to serve breakfast to him, and so they eat. It's, a, again, a, a rather simple and, uh, and um, uh, uh, insignificant meal, and yet he eats it rather warmly. And he says unto this older couple, I want to grant you three wishes. And they're at first taken aback. Three wishes? What for, sir? I just want to grant you three wishes. And, and so they say, well, we would wish for eternal happiness, and for as long as we're alive, uh, the health that comes from being the recipients of our daily bread. And the Lord says, okay, fine, what about your third wish? And they said, you know what, that's enough for us. We're good. And he says, what about a larger home? And they say, surely not. No, not necessarily. The Lord says, what about a larger home? And they say, okay. And right there, boom, a larger home right there, all right? And so he gets up on his merry way and heads on down the way. Well, <clears throat> the wife of the larger manor uh, looks out the window and notices the boom, larger home is there all of a sudden. So she rushes across the street and asks the, 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 uh, the, the woman of that home, what is this? And she says, this traveler comes in and he stays the night and offers us three wishes. And one of them was, boom, this great house. Well, the, the rich wife suddenly runs back to her husband and goes, honey, the man, he's giving out wishes. They had a house. So what does husband do? He hops on his horse, runs off, takes off after the man, catches up to the Lord. Nobody knows it's the Lord, right? Catches up to the Lord, but, you know, obviously three wishes, he must be something. Um, 
He says to the Lord, oh, oh, kind sir, please stop for just a moment. You know, I, I'm so sorry. I, it was just a matter, I couldn't find the key to the front door. I really, things were getting late. I couldn't do it. Please, sir, the next time when you're in town, please come stay with us. And the Lord says, I will do that. At which point the, the rich man says to him, now, sir, it's my understanding that you're giving out wishes. Is that correct? And the Lord says, yes, yes, I am. And he says, well, might I have three wishes as well? And the Lord says, I will grant you three wishes, but I would be careful what you wish for. Now, I'm not going to finish the story for you. Because it's linked on the resource doc for this week's sermon. So you can go to the website and get it yourself. Boom. Read it to your own kids. I'm not doing the work for you. You're the parent. Read it to each other. Whatever. I'll just say that the story... Well, it, it ends poorly for the rich man. Ha! Huh? Look, um, story writ large of, of two very different sets of couples, and, and what distinguishes them is not primarily um, the difference in means. One had far more than the other. One had far less than the other. What, what distinguishes them most is the quality of the heart they possess. That the... The, the center of the story, the irony of the story is that those who had far less means had a far greater generosity of spirit. The quality of their heart was such that they were far more interested in the needs of another than those who were perhaps more disposed to be available to see the needs of the other. So it's this difference in quality of heart. Now, I'm pretty sure that none of us aspires to live hand to mouth. It's quite possible that some of us are on this very day. And some of us may in the future or have in the past. And we would give thanks in all circumstances and perhaps learn to be content. And yet no one aspires to live hand to mouth. And yet I I think it's also fair to say that all of us would aspire to have that quality of heart that the the couple with meager means possessed. That they would sort of have a, a very loose grip on anything that they might possess that it might be available to others. We all aspire to that. And the question is, what is the key to having that quality of heart? The Brothers Grimm don't care to say. They just sort of illustrate it, but they don't explain why. Look, we need to go there. And James does too in this passage, but in a very different way. And if you will, almost the the antithesis, the exact opposite of what that meager couple exhibited. We're in the downhill slope of listening to James in his letter. We're in chapter 5. And he's going to do something in these first six verses of chapter 5 that he has done nowhere else in the letter. He is going to speak about certain people that are not even members of those fledgling Jewish Christian communities in first century Syria. He's going to speak about them, but as an encouragement to those who are part of those fledgling Jewish communities. And he's going to speak some of the fiercest words he has spoken in the entirety of the letter. And it's almost bizarre because he's not, like those he's, a, he's speaking of, they're not even part of the community. And yet he has something to say about them that's meant to be an encouragement to those who are part of those fledgling communities. And I think it has everything to do with the kind of quality of heart that the Brothers Grimm is out to contrast between two ways of being. We're going to ask what is the key to the quality of that heart and what is the hope of it being true in us. So I'm going to invite one of those children to whom I read the story this week. She's going to read the first six verses, and she's going to do her best impression of sounding like somebody with a croup. 
So, if you'd like to stand, we're going to read in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. (laughs) Oh, yeah, hilarious words from James, right? Yeah, Next, next part of the dry bar comedy special. Okay, it was on a spur of the moment that I invited her to read that, but there's something to that, right? To have that voice speak those words, right? Curious little juxtaposition there, like the proverbial voice of innocence talking about a fall from innocence. Last week, we listened to a passage that was addressing merchants that were probably part of the churches of first century Syria. And what James had to say to them was, I know you like to invest and plan, but you ought to do so with reference to God's providence that he's involved, that he's present, that he cares. Um, and therefore, to, to invest in any other way is to invest poorly or improperly. And, and therefore, even if you and I are not entrepreneurial in nature or involved in business anyway, we felt like whatever you give yourself to, however you spend your life or your resources, appealing to providence makes a difference in the way you give shape and character and even the way you hold on to your plans and aspirations. What links what James said last week to this week is that James is still addressing the idea of that which has a material nature to it, material concerns, that which is of a a physical nature and our need. And yet what he's doing here, as I said in the introduction, he's addressing a very different audience, an audience that is not ever going to hear his words because they're not part of this church to which he is writing in first century Syria. And therefore, who he's talking to has uh, a specific character. These are the folks who are materially, financially, and otherwise oppressing members of the community. They're not part of it, but they're oppressing those who are part of it. And in verses 4 through 6, he gets to, like, what's at issue here? And just to remember, to set this in context here, first century Syria, if you're a Jew and you become a Christian, you've pretty much just cut yourself off from all your Jewish brethren. And anybody that's proclaiming the name of Jesus in that moment is already starting to be looked at with a great deal of suspicion because you're no longer somebody saying Caesar is Lord. Now you're saying Jesus is Lord and they're saying, "Uh uh-oh, here comes trouble. And with that point, you are now a political, cultural, financial, and social refugee in many senses of the word. And it, so it's not, it's not weird to imagine that those who have a vested interest in making more investments would seize upon the opportunity to get everything out of you that they can. And in verses 4, 5, and 6, you hear what those outside the church 
are doing to those inside it. They say, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lords of hosts. You held them in your employ. You told them what you wanted to do. You promised them a wage. You put them to work. And now you're looking for a way to get out of it. To circumvent the process. To be able to keep your money and yet still benefit from their labor. That's what's at odd. Why are they doing that? Why are these landowners or whoever they are of greater means, why are they doing that? It's what it says in verse 5. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They like living large. They want to keep living large. And so they're going to get people to do their work for them and then they're going to try to keep their money so that they can feather their bed. That's why they're doing what they're doing. And to what degree are they going to it? That's what you hear in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't even resist you. Some think that that maybe sort of is a metaphorical metaphorical way of saying this. You, You are trying to defraud them of their wages, and then you're going to the courts and working the system, like whoever does that, right? Working the system to get the system to work into your favor and against those who have no representation. But if you do that for day laborers who live hand to mouth, you've essentially condemned them to death because they got to eat and you're not paying them what they deserve. And you think, man, it must have been tough back then. Like, that doesn't still happen, right? Oh, yeah? Go listen to this week's episode of This American Life. It's called Hoaxing Yourself. Act 2 with Ira Glass is all about those, those folks that prey upon elderly people who have assets and try to promise them, oh, of these sweet deals of investments, but you've got to, like, put it all in or it's not really going to help. And you listen to these recordings. The, the funny thing about the recordings, though, is that the, the guy that's trying to bilk this person out of the money, uh, the person he's talking to, is actually an FBI sting operative. And so you just hear this going on over and over again because it's that big of a deal. Those kind of scammers, they're alive and well. And so what happened in the first century Palestine, it just takes new forms. Those with means trying to prey upon those with little representation to get even more. And it's to that point. And therefore, you do that, you are sentencing them to a kind of death by impoverishing them to their greatest last penny. Just in those few verses, James is making the implicit idea that one look is this god may be spirit but he has an interest in our physical well-being yeah invisible um omniscient uh, omnipotent and a spirit but he still cares about our fleshliness our fleshly need jesus says as much god is spirit he has an interest in our physical well-being but also God, while he is leading history to an ultimate justice, he still is not uninterested in a present justice. Why else would James be taking the time to include this little rhetorical flourish in a letter he's addressing to some people, but he's wanting to talk about somebody else? Because God cares about that part. Even if justice is broken in this world, God has an interest in it flourishing again. And on the basis of that, James spouts the fiercest words he has ever said in this letter. And the reason he does so is because he's got a prophet in his ear and eternity in his eye. 
when I say that he's got a prophet in his ear, if you listen to what happened in verses 1 through 3, you hear what's the consequence that's coming upon those who were perpetrating what you heard in verses 4 through 6. Listen again, verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Stop beating around the bush, James. What do you mean? For that injustice, James is saying that there is a reckoning. And that reckoning is at work even then. We read the Old Testament scripture from Deuteronomy 24 and you thought, now there's a text out of left field. Why that? Because what James is talking about here, denying wages, that's a violation of Jewish law. You contract with them, you pay them. That's the deal. They need it. They'll die without it. That's why it's in the law. In Deuteronomy 24, in Leviticus 19, they die without their money. And so James has got the law in his ear, but he's also got prophets like Isaiah and Amos in his ear because on frequent occasions, it's prophets like that who who condemn both Israelite and non-Israelite alike for trampling on those who are needy for their own gain. And James hears that, and James sees that happening again, and so he says, you know what? You know how history is going to repeat itself? It's going to repeat itself. It is repeating itself. As you have trampled on their needs, James says, everything that you've come to find precious is going to be trampled on. And so he gets really rich in his imagery here. Your riches are spoiling. Everything that is finery to you is going to be eaten through. And even these precious metals that are precious because they don't deteriorate, even that is going to melt before your eyes. It's going. It's a judgment. And and where that happens is going to be evidence of your complicity in the problem. Practicing injustice for the sake of self-indulgence is evidence of the fact that you have been seduced by wealth. You have denigrated and denied and defrauded and let all sorts of people suffer the indignity of your interest in feathering your bed. And that's James's overarching point to people that are being materially oppressed. That God knows it, God cares about it, and God will act on your behalf. And therefore, take heart, he's saying to those churches. Now, <clears throat> that's a lot of background context, and, and it's not going to be a surprise to me if many of you are thinking right now, so what? Okay, I've got to get to the so what part. For one thing, look, if you're a business person, if you have people in your employ, and you are defrauding them, or denying them the wages that are due them. Uh, When James says, do not deny or defraud, he's not saying, go ahead and keep denying and defrauding them. Just to be clear. Okay? That's a problem. And that theology is on the top of the page, and if you can't see it, I can't help you. But the reason that this text applies to us all, whether we are in employing anybody else or have investments in any other way that are ending up defrauding them wittingly or unwittingly the reason it applies to us is this what is in such an egregious form in these folks who are committing these atrocities what's in such an egregious form in them is in seed form in every single one of us 
that what they demonstrated, writ large, we are capable of as well. Even if right now, that feels so impossible to us. That there is a nature in us that given the right circumstances, could well be down the road towards perpetrating, if maybe in a more subtle way. And the reason I know that is because once I was eight, and when I was eight, I discovered commerce via the proverbial lemonade stand, right? Kool-Aid lemonade, right? I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, well, that's not funny. Um, but I went into business with my friend on the next street over. His name was Matthew. And so I show up at his house, and his parents had gotten the full uh, Kool-Aid lemonade stand. You send in enough UPC symbols, right? Stags, and they, they send that to you. But his parents had gone, you know, all out. They had put the contact paper all over it so that when it gets wet, it doesn't, like, seep through. And you can, you can use it for multiple years. So I show up. He and I go into business. Um, he supplies the lemonade stand. He supplies the lemonade. And we sell lemonade. And probably by the end of the day, we'd made, like, 10 or 15 bucks. I mean, at 25 cents a glass, that's a lot of lemonade. And I'm thinking to myself, 10 bucks? We, we cleared 10 bucks. Five for me, five for you, right? Uh, he looks back at me, his mom looks back at me, and she goes, well, you know, we had a little capital investment, so to speak, on the front end, right? A little upfront money. We, 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 bought, the, we bought the lemonade stand, and um, we supplied the lemonade and the water and the sugar, and, you know, you were on our property. So... Um, <clears throat> How about we click eight and you get two? And in the moment, I'm going, what? But why? Why, why would I care? Uh, maybe we'll just say it's a basic sense of fairness. But it's, you know, in that little moment, there's this little thing in you that kind of sort of, sort of identifies with what you think is the fruit of your labor that, like, like, that becomes important. And, like, nobody had to teach me, hey, this is important. It just did. I found a certain significance in what we had done. Fast forward, whether it's your experience or my experience, fast forward to yourself, uh, your history in a later day when maybe uh, you're alive and, and you've maybe got a little bit of discretionary income. Uh, you've got a little extra cash that you can use. And let's say life happens. And when life happens, disappointments come. And confusions hit and disorientation arises. And sometimes you've just got this little hollow feeling What's one way you may cope? You go buy stuff. Yeah, that'll fill it, right? Uh, I, I'm told that's called um, uh, retail therapy, right? So the proverbial uh, commercial with, okay, let's just be honest, it's mostly, it's mostly stereotyped as women who say, oh, I'm having a bad day. Let's go shopping, right? Of course men that do that too. They buy trucks. <clears throat> wow, I've just probably alienated 30% of you all of a sudden. Um, we have this little hole and we think what will fill it is if we exercise a little purchasing power. And so we go there and then about um, two days later, the hole's there still. And now I have this thing that I don't really need that now I have to pay insurance on. Oh Lord. It's what we do. It's where we go. It's, it's kind of hardwired into us. And what compounds the problem is not just um, those patterns that we begin that we don't have to be taught what compounds the problem is where we are. You have probably heard the story of the two fish who are uh, just swimming along, um, talking with each other, you know, saying, 
you know, guppies these days. I thought that was a good joke. <coughs> First service laughed more than you did. They're just chatting with each other, saying guppies these days. Uh-huh. Right. And this third fish um, swims right by and goes, hey, man, the water's fine, isn't it? And he goes right on because he's having a great day. And the two fish that are talking to each other, who at that point felt rudely interrupted, one looks at the other and says, water? What in the world is water? Right? They, they're just in it. They don't know any other way. And that's just, it's the water they swim in. And friends, there's a sense in which you're part of a culture that you really aren't aware of most of the time, that I'm not really aware of how it shapes and influences the way I think. And therefore, you got tonight, know, you and I know that we're in a certain pool. And that pool has an, a certain kind of pull on our hearts. And that pool will do a lot of things. It will encourage patterns of you finding your meaning, your significance, and your security in what you have. It's not just this thing that you use. It's this thing that sort of displays something about you that you want others to see. That's the pool you're in. That pool is also something that will do a fantastic Jedi mind trick on you to let you think or to make you think that what you want is really what you need. It's brilliant at that. Like, we are already being bombarded six weeks out from Christmas with what? Advertisements. Why? Because they've realized if they advertise it, you will come. We're in that pool. We're in that pool, and you know what? We're in a certain skin. And the skin you're in is a skin that more often than not makes decisions not on cold, detached, dispassionate, logic, but that which makes decisions on abject emotion. You feel this gut thing and you go after it. The pool you're in and the skin you're in conspire to all sorts of things that if you are not aware of it, stuff can go bad. Lee. George uh, Monbiot is a, is a British writer. He wrote in a, The Guardian a few years ago. He said this about materialism, which is just the one big word that refers to what I've been talking about recently. Materialism is both socially destructive and self-destructive. It smashes the happiness and peace of mind of those who succumb to it. It's associated with anxiety, depression, and broken relationships. Um, he's certainly not arguing that uh, living hand-to-mouth is a better way in the sense of the way it, it, it too can encourage all sorts of forms of anxiety. He's just saying, you and I, the pool we're in, the skin we're in, can set you up for thinking that if I'll just go there, everything will be well, and in fact, it becomes a self-destructive form of living. <clears throat> I don't need to tell you the plot line of Breaking Bad, right? Walter White, he contracts lung cancer. He's a chemistry teacher at a high school. He's, he quits his job. He finds one of his former students. They begin a meth business together because he just needs to know he's going to be able to provide for his family. And so he starts doing that dark industry. But if you know the narrative arc of that show, you realize that what began as a quest, a dark quest for the survival and provision of his family, in the end becomes a quest for empire. It's his own word. What was in seed form blossoms. And look, I'm not suggesting to any of you that you are on that trajectory, but life as it is, human nature as it is, given the right conditions, we can inch our way toward that life 
that is simply interested in one thing alone, us. It's what self-indulgence is. Now, am I or is James suggesting that we should abolish free markets or that we should all move to the desert? No. Some things can go together, even if they're hard to keep together. And uh, this week, I I put that very question to my focus group on Facebook. I asked them, what what are two things that can go together but that are hard to keep together? And there were some funny ones like, um, socks and Tupperware bowls and Tupperware lids and, and then there were some more wistful ones like grandparents and grandchildren or, or um, civility and political discourse there were uh, really bizarre ones Lisa Dobbins are you here um, she said a praying mantis and his head <laughs> and I'm wondering what sort of sick world she lives in <laughs> and there were some really poignant ones too like joy and grief. And folks, the Donaldson family is trying to hold that together in the power of the Spirit this day. And they join other families in our community that are trying to do the same. Joy and grief can go together even though it's hard to keep together. And I hope that you will bookmark that in your head because there is something that we're going to do on the first Sunday of Advent that I will share more with you about later that might help us to know that joy and grief can still go together. But the reason I asked that question on Facebook this week was just to provide any number of illustrations to make this point. In your mind, there are things that can go together but that are hard to keep together. And in your mind, one of those two ideas is this, that wealth is obtained and wealth is entrusted. Two different ideas. They can go together. They're hard to keep together. You, you do obtain your wealth. You do work hard. And there is a satisfaction and a delight in, in receiving the fruit of your labors. And regardless of what um, economic theorists you talk to, they'll all say there is something inherently good about working hard and receiving fruit of that. But when you try to bring that thought and couple it to the idea that wealth is entrusted, that from a theological point of view, everything that you have is in some sense a gift. This one, it's easy to be obscured by this thought. But they can go together, it's just harder to keep them together. Those things can go together in your mind. What can go together in your practice, even though it's harder to keep them together in practice, is having wealth and acting with integrity. Is having wealth and being sacrificially generous until it hurts. Being wealthy and being selfless in your use of that wealth. Those things can go together even though they're hard to keep together. And the question is, what will keep them together? The Brothers Grimm tells the story of of that idea being held together, but he doesn't tell us how. How do those stay together? They are hinted at in maybe a dramatically ironic way in verse 6. Ah yes, the text again. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is talking about those in the community that are suffering under the oppression of these landowners. But look, that should remind you of someone. Someone who was condemned and murdered and did not resist the process that was unfolding before him. 
when Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he's trying to encourage in them a generosity, he first of all points to the Macedonian church as an example of it because they had barely anything and yet they gave rather lavishly. But he says the Macedonian church was doing that not simply to kind of show everybody, look, we can be generous. It's because of what they knew that Paul outlines in chapter 8 of verse 9 of 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, this is the key to that quality of heart that is demonstrated by that couple in the Brothers Grim Tale. This is the key. It's not about me saying it. It's about looking to one who was once rich. Who had full communion with the Father and the Spirit. Who existed in an entirely and internal loving relationship. Giving, serving, cherishing, heralding one another. He was rich in every sense of the word. But he became poor. He enters into our limitation. He enters into our weakness. He enters into all those expressions of what it means to be exposed in this world. He enters into ridicule. He goes there. And then by his poverty, by entering into that weakness to such a degree that he gives up his last breath, that he dies on our behalf, that he spends the last part of himself by walking into death. That's how he impoverished himself. And in so doing, what does he accomplish? He enriches us with a wealth that will never wither. He enriches us with the wealth of the forgiveness of your sins. He enriches us with the wealth of a communion with God that cannot be taken from you. He enriches us with the wealth of an inheritance that cannot spoil and cannot be revoked. This is the gospel. And the key to generosity is looking to the one who became rich, who then, out of his poverty, impoverishing himself, we become rich. That's the key to the quality of heart. And the reason we have to look to Jesus is because if I'm talking to a church about generosity, whether if it's finances or time or aptitude or whatever, one thought that may go through your head, as we said earlier this summer in the book on Proverbs, is you're thinking, all right, how much is enough? Like, how generous do I have to be before I get God off my back? Even if you don't say it, you think it. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong orientation to the top. It's not about what percentage of your adjusted gross income goes to the interests of others. It's about the quality of the heart that James is interested in. And therefore, why Paul invokes Jesus as the basis for generosity is not a backhanded way of saying to you, like maybe at one time your mother said to you, why can't you be like your older brother? Not like guilting you in the form of an example. Like, why don't you live up to his example? That's not the motivation. We look to Jesus as our motivation in the way we look to Jesus and what motivated him to be generous. And what motivated him? He knew that everything that the Father had entrusted to him had a purpose and to be available. But more importantly, Jesus was generous because he knew that all that he might give up would be far, far, far less than what he could not lose. 
than what he already had in his father. And to believe in the gospel is to believe in generosity on the basis of the same motivation that Jesus had. That what you have, what you've been entrusted with, has a purpose. And that what you might give up is still far, far less than what you cannot lose. If you're wanting me to tell you how generous you need to be, I can't say that because it's not a formula. There's no calculation. What I can say is, though, when you look to Jesus as the source of all goodness that you have in him, then you hold everything that you have perhaps with a little looser grip. Perhaps the most compelling story we heard on Friday night at the Q Commons event was from a guy named David Nasser, who was born into a Muslim family in Iran right around the time of the Iranian Revolution in the late 70s. His family flees Iran, gets to America. They're political refugees. They move into a military town in Texas. But because he's part of a Muslim community, he's already a religiously refugee also. Nobody invites him to his parties, their parties. <clears throat> he's just sort of separated. But later they move to Alabama. And one night when David Nasser is in his teens, he is smoking weed with a friend. And as they're smoking weed, the friend of his invites him to church. So that's a pre-evangelistic strategy, if I've ever heard one. Invites <laughs> him to church. And David Nasser had no interest in going. But the guy keeps leaning on him. So they go home. And uh, David takes his friend into the room and goes to talk to his father and, and asks his father to even go to church just so that he, he, his father can say no in front of his friend. <clears throat> and so David asks his dad, can I go to church? And out of the blue, his father says, what's the name of the church? He's like, he's like why are you asking that? Two weeks before David Nasser's friend invited him to church, uh, David Nasser's dad runs a French restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama. And one night, they're getting slammed with um, a, a rush. But he's short-staffed. And they're at one table with several people. They're part of a Baptist community in Birmingham, Alabama. And they see what's going on. They see that Mr. Nasser's rest, French restaurant is, is falling apart. And you know what they do? They get up and start waiting tables for him. They bust tables. They take orders. They bring out food. They take care of him. And it turns out to be the worship leader and several members of that community. And they sustain that kind of spontaneous form of kindness towards this guy for like several days until he can get more help. And so when Mr. Nasser asks his son, what's the name of the church? And he tells, the son says, this church. And he goes, that's the church. Yeah, you can go. And it's that worship leader that invites David Nasser's father to choir practice who starts coming David Nasser, in time, becomes a Christian, and later, his parents become Christians. But they weren't doing that to be evangelistic per se. They were doing that to be loving. They were doing that to be generous. That's holding an open hand for all that you have. That's realizing that though you've been made rich, there is one who was even richer, who made himself even poorer, that you might become more richer than you could imagine. And when that sticks, when that clicks, we're alive. And we are liberated. 
may it be so unto us, but only on the basis of understanding the kindness of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.